It serves always to distract the public councils and enfeeble the public administration. It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riot and insurrection. George Washington, September 17, 1796. Welcome to Civics and Coffee. My name is Alicia, and I am a self-professed history nerd. Each week, I'm going to chat about a topic on U.S. history and give you both the highlights and occasionally break down some of the complexities in history and share stories you may not remember learning in high school, all in the time it takes to enjoy a cup of coffee. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Whig, Democrat, know-nothing, Republican, free soil, political parties seem to be as American as apple pie. And in an ever-growing tribal country where people make broad assumptions based on one's political affiliation, party identity has taken on new meaning. But where did it all come from? Did we always have political parties? Did the founding fathers see this coming? And why do only two parties get all the attention? Spoiler alert, though maybe a foregone conclusion in hindsight, the Constitution was not written with the viewpoint that an oppositional force would gain any traction. So this week, I will dive into the history of political parties, including the history of just how and when two parties came to the forefront. Grab your cup of coffee, peeps. Let's do this. When you walk into a voting booth, chances are you see varying political parties. Typically, you have the two that we know and love for love to hate, and every so often you have candidates vying for office who are affiliated under what are classified as third parties. The Green Party, Libertarian, maybe even the Constitution Party. When trying to track the origin story of political parties in the United States, it's important to highlight there's a difference between political parties, something that developed fairly quickly at the beginning of the new federal government, and a party system, which is what we're familiar with today. Political parties, in the context of this episode, were just a group of like-minded individuals who felt things should go a certain way and organized loosely to achieve a common goal, vanquishing the opposition. A party system, on the other hand, is when these individuals formalize their organization efforts and run candidates under the same banner. Once elected, these party members run the government and rely on the backing of supporters to elect their members and provide funding. And while many historians point to the divide between Hamilton's Federalists and Jefferson's Democratic Republicans as the very first example of a party system in the United States, it wasn't an intentional ploy by either man. When Hamilton and Jefferson split and created their opposing factions, they did not do so with the intent to create these bureaucracies that would later come to dominate politics. Their efforts came from a sense of duty to the country, fully believing the other represented a threat to the survival of the new Republican government. In one of the most classic examples of irony, though the founders all argued parties, or factions, were a bad thing for a republic, Disagreement was prominent at the earliest stages of its formation. If you remember, a few episodes back, I talked about the creation of the Constitution and the ratifying conventions. I mentioned there were two opposing sides. The Federalists, 
who were in support of ratifying the Constitution and installing a strong central government, thereby repealing the Articles of Confederation. They worked hard on a public relations campaign that culminated in the publication of what we now call the Federalist Papers. On the other side, you had individuals who felt the Articles of Confederation were just fine, and it was just a matter of a few minor edits to make it perfect. History has dubbed these individuals the Anti-Federalists, though they never rallied under that moniker themselves. The Anti-Federalists were, understandably, a little gun-shy about granting power to a centralized government. They had just fought a war to get out from under the thumb of one monarch. A strong centralized government, they feared, would lead to a new monarchy, something they were not exactly excited about. The two men who would later play a pivotal role in the division of the Republic into separate and dueling parties, James Madison and Alexander Hamilton, were the same ones who cautioned against factions of opposing forces. Madison argued in Federalist 10 that differing opinions were inevitable and a natural part of political life. His argument was in smaller republics, like those under the Articles of Confederation, voters could be easily tricked into electing incompetent individuals. Larger republics, such as, say, the one proposed by the Constitution, were more insulated from the whims and emotions and therefore less likely to allow opposing factions to gain any momentum. Separate from the arguments made by the Federalist Papers was the man who was expected to lead the new country, George Washington. Though they were concerned about the potential of a monarchy, even anti-Federalists trusted Washington to lead with honor and dignity and to reject any monarchist tendencies. It was this faith in Washington, in part, that prevented a fracture at the start of the new government. Of course, given the close votes during many of the ratifying conventions, it seems almost inevitable the country would wind up divided. But the trust placed into Washington seemed to blind even the most cynical. Washington was unanimously elected and is the only president to serve without an official party affiliation. But electing Washington did not stop the disagreements. The sentiments and concerns before the Constitution was ratified remained even after he was elected. And of course, Washington couldn't be all things to all people, though Lord knows he tried. Those who embraced the Federalist ideals leaned into the idea of a strong central government and a strong executive and tended to align with business owners. Those who held anti-Federalist sentiments preferred limited government and appealed to farmers. And both camps had a man inside the administration to sway their way. Hamilton for the Federalists and Jefferson for the Anti-Federalists. These men were not exactly wallflowers either though Jefferson tried very hard to avoid any direct confrontation. If you've seen the musical, you know Hamilton and Jefferson are not two men who saw eye to eye. However, though they held very different views, they were both initially committed to serving as faithfully as possible in the new administration. What started out as mild disagreements evolved into an all-out battle of the minds over the course of Washington's first term. The first test of their political differences came when Hamilton proposed a national bank and assuming all state debt. Jefferson, who preferred the idea of small government, was adamantly opposed to this idea and argued heavily against its creation, stating the Constitution did not allow it. Washington disagreed, and Hamilton got his way. The second disagreement, and perhaps more personal for Jefferson, came in the form of international diplomacy, 
and whether the United States should get involved in the war between France and Great Britain. Jefferson, a well-known Francophile, argued heavily for U.S. support of the French. It was the French, Jefferson reminded everyone, who helped the United States break the British shackles and gain their independence to begin with. The United States promised to be an ally. It was time to make good on their commitment. Hamilton, however, argued the government who helped America gain their independence no longer existed. The French were in the midst of a revolution. Heads of government were changing rapidly. Hamilton also felt that the future of the American economy would need to rely on British business. It was better not to anger a potential future trade partner. Washington ultimately decided to stay neutral and not support either country. This only served to entrench the two factions further and was widely unpopular throughout the country, though history would prove Washington made the smart decision. As Jefferson grew increasingly dissatisfied with the policies of the administration, he began taking actions that served to undercut the president, including working with James Madison to bring anti-federalist journalist Philip Furneaux to Philadelphia to start the National Gazette. The paper served as a tool to publicly criticize the administration without having to speak up for himself. Ultimately, the Neutrality Declaration proved to be the last straw, and Jefferson resigned as Secretary of State in 1793. By the end of their tenure in Washington's administration, both Hamilton and Jefferson were actively seeking to undermine and outmaneuver the other. Hamilton felt Jefferson was an ambitious demagogue only out to serve himself, and Jefferson saw Hamilton as a schemer dedicated to restoring the monarchy. They effectively built a network of supporters who went to work trying to rally the electorate onto their side. Though neither of them openly campaigned, since the idea of politicking and bashing your opponents was seen as distasteful. Instead, supporters would pen what we would consider op-eds against their political foe, usually challenging his honor and promoting their preferred choice. The division was known and felt throughout the country so much so that when Washington took his final bow and announced he would not seek a third term, he made mention of the detriment of opposing factions in his farewell address. This did not slow either side. The two oppositional forces went to work in jockeying for their candidate to fill the top spot and therefore implement their political agenda. This came to a head in the 1796 presidential election, where, for the first time, men in two different political parties vied for the office of the President of the United States. Both camps worked to ensure their candidate received the most votes possible. On the Democratic-Republican side, the party of Jefferson, he was the leading choice. On the Federalist side, Many assumed Vice President John Adams was the natural next choice. Hamilton, however, had other ideas, and his schemes would cause one of the most awkward election outcomes in United States history. As two separate forces were now lobbying heavily for their individual candidates, a lot of planning went into ensuring enough votes were cast for the preferred candidate. In Adams's case, the plan was for the Federalist-leaning individuals to cast a vote for Adams and Pickney, with a few electors holding back their second vote to prevent a tie. Aware of this plot, and preferring Pickney as president over Adams, Hamilton lobbied some Southern electors to withhold their ballot for Adams. Hearing of the scheme, Adams' supporters countered this by telling electors in the Northeast to not cast their second vote for Pickney. The result? Adams was elected president with 71 votes, and Thomas Jefferson, the candidate from the opposing party, became vice president 
with 68 votes. Poor Pickney placed third with a total of 59 votes. It was the first and only time the president and vice president were from differing political parties. Can you say awkward? This unfortunate outcome was a direct result of the original text of the Constitution. If you remember, originally, the Constitution stated the candidate with the most electoral votes would be elected president and the one with the second would serve as vice president. Clearly, they did not foresee the problems that would arise later with the splitting of political leanings. This created a politically untenable situation, not to mention very unproductive. How could the president run the country effectively if the president of the Senate, the vice president, had different ideas for how the country should look? I have news for you. It didn't go very well. I'm gearing up for a look into our second president, so I'll dive into Adams and his administration a little later. But suffice to say, the frenemies were more enemy than friends during Adams' tenure as president. And while parties have shifted in scope, size, organization, and name over the years, they've always been a pretty consistent portion of our country's politics. Okay, we've covered a little on how we got parties. Let's talk about why there remain only two who truly dominate national politics. One of the issues is the winner-take-all plurality voting method the United States uses in its local and national elections. In plurality voting, each voter is allowed to vote for only one candidate, and the candidate who gets the most votes wins. When voting for a candidate for the House of Representatives, for example, each state is broken up into districts, and candidates vie to represent said district. When you walk into the voting booth, you are given a choice of typically only two, but sometimes three or four, candidates. The one who gets the most votes is considered the winner. But of course, who decides the districts? elected officials. This is problematic since the individuals who are hoping to keep their jobs are the ones deciding in what market they're competing in and often draw the district in their favor. This gets a lot of national attention and is commonly referred to as gerrymandering. Representatives picking their constituents instead of constituents picking the representatives. The other prevailing issue is ballot access laws. Since the Constitution decentralized voting, kicking it to the individual states to decide how they wanted to conduct elections, each state had to come up with their own rules and qualifiers to run for office. Ballot access laws outline how many signatures a potential candidate needs to get their name on the ballot, and of course, these laws are typically written by one of the two major parties in the United States, and as you can imagine, they didn't exactly make it easier for a third-party outsider to challenge their post. At the end of the day, the creation of the two-party system was not something the founders likely foresaw and did not believe could happen. In their minds, the country was established on Republican principles, meaning a government by and for the people. In their mind, if parties were allowed to exist, it would only lead to a negative outcome for the country. I will let you decide if you think they're right. As always, if you've been enjoying the show, please consider a rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And of course, you can always get show notes and say hi or request an episode topic on the website at www.civicsandcoffee.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Civics and Coffee. If you want to hear more small snippets from American history, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me, and I look forward to our next cup of coffee together. 
They just fought a war to get out from under the Though history would prove They just fought a war to get out from under the thumb of one of what we now call the Federalists. But the trust placed it into Washington plus the